Hey there. A quick warning before we start. Today's episode touches on divorce, sexual assault, and suicidal ideation. Please be mindful if you continue to listen, and reach out for support if you need it. There's also a little bit of swearing. Today's guest, Jess, opens up about the difficulties of finding work-life balance during a PhD. Her difficult experiences with family, health, and sexual assault during her degree. The impact these experiences have had on her life. Why she believes she doesn't belong in academia. And how this has led to her future career goals. Despite the heavy content, Jess displays a huge amount of strength and makes a few jokes along the way. Jess has recently submitted her PhD thesis in Melbourne, Australia. Her research characterised a novel Alzheimer's mouse model and investigated the therapeutic potential of targeting heat shock protein 72. This was a bit of a longer recording because Jess and I are close and support each other, so it's a safe environment for us to cover some of these topics in reasonable depth. I've edited it down, but can hopefully release more of this conversation at a later stage, as a bonus episode. The topic of suicide did catch me by surprise, but we both agreed that it's important not to avoid it. I think some people use their job as this huge identifier of who they are. And when you put so much identification on your career and all of a sudden you can no longer do your career, well, now I've lost who I am as well. And yeah, spending three months like in my bedroom and trying just not to, I mean, having suicidal ideations every day for that long, like you you never ever think that you'll get through the other side of it. And that was probably the most scary thing. Yeah. Welcome to Voices of Academia with Emily King. It's a podcast where researchers from around the world open up about their mental health. They might laugh, cry, or say things you disagree with, but this is lived experience, not professional advice. We cover some sensitive material, but it's worth it to normalize difficult conversations, reduce stigma, and help people feel less alone. Let's get into it. So I thought we would start with a little bit of history about you. So obviously something drew you into research. So I'd really like to go back sort of through your childhood a little bit and and through your schooling and undergrad. Just talk us through a little bit what led you into research. So I ask myself this question a lot, actually, and I'm sure a lot of people that Uh, you know, perhaps struggling during their PhD, ask themselves, why am I doing this or why am I here? And, you know, there's always the answer of uh, I wanted to make an impact and I I wanted to be the best and, you know, I love research and I love discovering things. Uh, But for myself, if I was to dig a bit deeper into why I pursued science and why I pursued this particular career, I think it is a um, a mixture of being quite lonely as a child and I didn't particularly have a lot of friends in primary school and I was 
Uh, I was a really lonely child in my household environment as well. And I guess I really threw myself into my studies and into, you know, always doing homework and always doing extra studies because there was nothing much else to do. And, and when I saw myself excelling and doing really well, you know, in maths and in science and with school in general, I guess it gave me that sense of pride that, well, it doesn't matter if I don't have many friends or it doesn't matter if I'm, if I'm lonely at home because I've got something that I'm really good at. Um, and I guess it just led me to continue on to wanting to be the best at something and wanting to be better. And <laughs> I guess what's better than a PhD? There's nothing higher that there's no level of education higher than a PhD. And I guess in an unhealthy way that led me to just wanting to pursue to be the best at something um, regardless of how I got there or, or how beneficial it probably was to my life um, or to my mental health as well. Yeah, uh, I have I have personal ties to um, my particular area of research. Um, my mum's mum passed away with Alzheimer's disease. So when that opportunity came along, it was something that I really wanted to pursue as well. Yeah, but I think at the end of the day, it was really just about wanting to perhaps gain respect from others that I, I didn't think that I could do without getting a PhD. Yeah, really, I guess, if I think about it deeply, really unhealthy things. <laughs> yeah, and I can, I can tell you've been to therapy. Thank you for sharing. I really wasn't expecting that level of depth from that question, but I think it shows a lot of insight and I can totally relate that, you know, striving for status and striving for respect. So as much as there are, you know, some personal ties for you for being drawn to research, there are also some underlying things there as well. So thank you for sharing. So how do you personally feel with your experience in terms of trying to, to manage your PhD and work-life balance? What are some of the challenges that you feel you face? Honestly, if I can be crass, it's been pretty shit. <laughs> I think it is absolutely ridiculous for supervisors and for the whole system to expect a PhD student to live off $27,000 a year. I'm pretty sure minimum wage is something like 36000 legally and PhD students who are expected to work full-time and are often expected to work more than full-time hours. Living off such a small amount of money can be so stressful the other factor that is quite frustrating as a PhD student is the clause in our contract that we are technically not allowed to work a certain amount of hours as well for extra pay. So a lot of PhD students will work as a teaching academic, um, usually uh, at, at a university to teach undergrad students lab skills and in our contract for our scholarships, it says that we aren't allowed to work a particular amount of hours. I think it's more than 20 hours per week because we need to focus on our PhD. And again, it's just so difficult because how can you expect us to not work extra hours and to not try to earn money to pay rent and to buy groceries? And we're trying to do high level work, but at the back of our minds, 
you know, struggling to pay rent and to eat every day. So I think that's definitely a huge stress for a lot of people. Myself in particular, I guess I've been a bit lucky. My first few years of my PhD, I was still sort of living at home. And then I moved out into my mum's investment property. So I was paying reduced rent. The last sort of year and a half, I've been out of home living with my partner, paying a normal amount of rent. But again, if I didn't have a partner, I don't know how I would financially be able to support myself. I started my own business last year, which has had to stop because of coronavirus. I've always worked multiple jobs. That's even through high school and through my undergrad. In the first few years of my PhD, I was working obviously the full-time hours of the PhD and Saturday and Sunday at different pharmacies. And then every second week I was working as a teaching academic, again, trying to make extra money because, yeah, I mean, it's just honestly so ridiculous. (laughs) And yeah, definitely all of that, trying to manage all of that is so challenging. So we're going to shift gears now and start to talk a little bit more in depth about mental health. So as I've said before, Jess, please only share what you feel comfortable sharing. For our listeners, I'm not a trained psychologist. I'm a researcher, so I have an evidence-based approach. And I also have personal experience with mental illness and a few years of attending therapy under my belt as well. So I feel like that that helps me in, in having these conversations. But I'm also aware that I don't have the qualifications, you know, to act as a therapist. So I really try to make sure uh, with everyone that they only talk about what they're comfortable talking about. So I think, Jess, maybe could you describe for us when you started to experience some impacts on your mental health in academia? Yeah, I think if we can backtrack a little bit, I think for a lot of people, if they're experiencing mental health problems or situations in their academic career, perhaps there has been, you know, signs or symptoms of it earlier in your life that maybe you haven't picked up before. So definitely for myself, my biggest, um, I guess, trauma or period of poor mental health has occurred during my PhD. But you know, looking back into my childhood and and going through high school and uni, definitely there were so many um, signs that popped up that things weren't, you know, necessarily healthy or okay. And that I, you know, I had sort of gone to therapy for, you know, situations like my parents separating, but I guess not necessarily properly looked into um, other aspects of my mental health. So I guess in my first year of my PhD, as I mentioned, uh, my parents had separated when I was in grade five and didn't like we sort of lived in the same house until I was in about year nine or year 10. So that's a solid maybe five or six years of quite developmental years as well, living in the same house. And as, as I mentioned at the start, that's where a lot of my loneliness came from. So I had one brother who had joined the army at the time. So he was away serving and my mum and my dad went through the type of divorce where there was no fighting or communication. It was just silence. And I guess I lived 
six years in silence um, at home. And as I mentioned, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school, uh, in primary school. So I think a lot of issues have stemmed from that, particularly going through therapy in the last few years. Definitely that's been a big thing that I've had to chat about. And so I never really, I guess I never really understood why my parents got divorced. I had some assumptions that perhaps it was my mum's fault because of things that, um, you know, my dad had tried to feed me. And during the first year of my PhD, a lot of family secrets came out regarding my dad. And I guess my whole foundation of who I was as a person and who who I identified myself with and with my family just completely crumbled and disappeared just in a split second. And that was so difficult. And I remember getting up out of my chair in my office and walking around blindly in the lab, just feeling like everyone's eyes were on me and feeling this shame because I was associated with the type of man that he was. And I just had this cloud over me. It's so hard to even describe. Essentially, when I went to therapy regarding that situation, it was just a lot of validating my feelings because I was so confused and so angry and I had so many questions about my childhood and why particular things had happened between my parents and why particular secrets were being kept within the family and a lot of anger. And that was really difficult to process while also trying to run experiments all day and trying to write lit reviews and trying to show up to work every day with a smile on my face. (laughs) And yeah, I I didn't take time off uh, work or anything for that particular scenario. I, I probably should have. I definitely was going down a really, really dark path in the weeks prior to, I guess, learning some information about my dad and yeah really really difficult and then in my second or third year of my PhD I hasn't been an (laughs) uh, hasn't been an easy path but um I had some more trauma I was sexually assaulted by someone who I thought was a friend and that was it for me like i gone through so much shit already I had recently broken up with a really long-term partner I had lost my best friend because of that Um, just differences in I guess in how I was coping Uh, yeah um, and again going to therapy my therapist said to me like you've gone through a lot of loss in the last few years of your life. You know, you, you've essentially lost your dad because I cut off that relationship straight away. I essentially lost my brother because my brother took my dad's side in this situation. I lost my partner. I lost my best friend and I didn't really know who I was anymore. Um, and then this assault happened and it was just everything just sort of like blew up in my face and 
as with a lot of assaults, unfortunately, it's always most likely going to be, you know, your word against their word. And um, I lost a few friends because of that situation as well, which is just devastating because here you are going through this trauma and you just have people tell you that they don't believe you. Um, and that was when I just I sent a text to my supervisor. I think it was like a week after because uh, it took some time to even process that it was an assault because I, I, I guess I didn't really believe it myself. And I just said to him, something bad has happened and I can't come into work anymore. And, yeah, that was the start of that journey. <laughs> and it's just, like, devastating experiences. And I just, I'm looking at you through the Zoom screen and I just, I want to give you such a big hug because for anyone experiencing one of those things, you know, not while doing a PhD, but experiencing one of those things just, you know, is so difficult. And so to experience a series of quite devastating events at the same time as trying to uh, achieve a PhD qualification, it's, it's hugely challenging. And particularly the experience that you mentioned, you know, quite a, quite a life-altering experience where your identity was sort of questioned and and flipped upside down, you know, how does anyone come to terms with something like that when, when they're also trying to hold it all together? So again, you know, thank you for sharing, because I think this is extremely helpful for anyone that is experiencing, you know, life challenges at the same time as doing uh, as being in academia, whether it's, you know, undergrad or or um, other levels of academia. What impacts do you think this sort of had on your life, I guess, outside of, you know, academia? Did this sort of impact you more widely? I mean, that's, that's a naive question because I know the answer is going to be yes. <laughs> I guess more how did this impact you? Going through these experiences, trying to hold it together in academia, what did that sort of look like for you? Oh, uh, God. Um, <laughs> a lot of crying <laughs> and lots of, again, I guess just feeling lonely. The particular type of research that I do is particularly isolating. So... I don't know whether it was helpful or a hindrance at the time because in a way I didn't feel judged for coming into work. I'll just give some background. I do a lot of behavioural experiments with mice and that requires just being in a dark room all day, every day, running sort of cognitive tests and I don't see anyone, I don't really talk to anyone. So on the positive side of that, I didn't feel judged for coming into work looking physically disheveled because I was mentally disheveled. I could <laughs> I could cry in the room by myself and no one would know and I wouldn't feel I wouldn't feel guilty or judged. I wouldn't feel embarrassed because I knew that no one would would see me for that particular amount of time. So I guess in a way that was good but obviously 
it just exacerbated the feelings of loneliness and isolation and feeling like <laughs> in the classic teenager saying, you know, no one understands me. I guess I really switched back to how I was in my younger years by just trying to throw myself into my studies and trying to block out all of the other noise. I feel like I socially isolated myself for a prolonged period of time during that time. I, I don't know whether it was the best thing for me. I, I think when you're going through something quite traumatic, you have a lot of feelings of embarrassment and of guilt. So perhaps not seeing anyone maybe was good for me at the time because I didn't have to feel guilty or I didn't have to feel embarrassed. But I know that I, I definitely should have reached out to social networks a lot more. I ended up taking three months off my PhD after the assault because Again, coming back to the physical side of mental health, I physically could not get out of bed. I physically could not think, could not concentrate. It was just this devastating feeling of never, ever going to be able to get back to what I was or who I was. And that just continued that cycle of disastrous thinking. And I came in to see uh, my supervisor and and told him what had happened and in a way like I had mentioned before in my head I feel like different types of trauma need to be ranked and and I felt like I needed to have a particular adequate reason as to why I was going to take time off work and even though I was sexually assaulted I still felt in my head that on the scale of rankings of things that are adequate, it still wasn't good enough. And feeling like that just felt so awful because I knew that I could no longer continue with my PhD. And so I already felt like I wasn't good enough because I couldn't continue working. But then I felt like the reason behind that wasn't good enough and it was just this cycle of not being good enough for so many reasons and yeah it was just this bloody awful feeling and I was starting a new relationship around that time as well tried to push him away push so many friends away you know those classic classic scenarios where you know you're pushing away the person that you actually need the most physically put on a lot of weight as well which is you know a, another physical symptom of mental health sometimes god and I just remember like spiraling and thinking to myself how am I ever going to get back and I was frustrated because as I have mentioned a few times now I have always striven I guess I would never ever say that I am the best at anything, but I'm always trying to do something really well or at least put on this facade that I'm someone that's trying to be the best. And 
I wasn't. I wasn't the best at anything. I was the best at being the worst because I couldn't do my PhD anymore. I was, that was like all I had left in my life, I guess, was being this scientist. And now that was gone. I think some people use their job as this huge identifier of who they are. And when you put so much identification on your career and all of a sudden you can no longer do your career, well, now I've lost who I am as well. And, yeah, spending three months, like, in my bedroom and trying just not to, I mean, having suicidal ideations every day for that long, like, you you never, ever think that you'll get through the other side of it and that was probably the most scary thing. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> I um I was about to ask you um if you could explain why it was so important for you to go back but you just absolutely hit the nail on the head there like I have that exact same experience too it you know it can it can be such a big part of your identity so I'm really glad that you touched on that I think sometimes for me it's this I think as, as I mentioned, like it's, it's this facade as well. Like you don't want to come across as this person who's struggling and you want to prove to your supervisors and to other people that you're fine. And Emily and I have spoken about this before, literally my second or third day back after taking time off, there was a an oral presentation competition at our institute and I decided to do it and it was I just had it in my head that I am better and I can do this and I will do this and it was just this horrific situation where where I it literally took all of my courage and every power every ounce of power in me to get up there and stand in front of people and talk and as soon as I finished I ran to my car and cried and cried and cried for at least an hour and here's the other thing I remember wanting to call lifeline at that point but then thinking to myself you're not even in a bad situation like this is not a good enough reason to call lifeline and it's just you have all these feelings and I kept getting angry why aren't I better yet? I said to myself, it's been three months. Why aren't I better? Why aren't you better? And I put so much pressure on just being fixed. And I don't think, I don't think you can just be fixed in three months. You know, like I, as I said, I I was trying not to end my life every day for three months and then bang all of a sudden I expected myself to just be fine (laughs) it was I I, want to jump in here because I think we're getting into some some territory that you know is really really tricky and I want to make sure that you're okay so I mean is this still something that you think about are you still having any suicidal ideation uh no 
Okay. I mean, like you think about if I was to die today or tomorrow, what legacy would I leave? But I don't think about ending my life anymore. So I, I think it's 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 a tricky one to talk about too. I think I think we need to talk about this because it's come up and it's dangerous territory when we need validation that what we're feeling is bad enough mm-hmm. to get support. Mm-hmm. And I can relate. I almost took myself to hospital a few times but I didn't think it was bad enough. I've said to my therapist numerous times, oh, I was going to call you, but, you know, I didn't think it was bad enough. Like I wasn't, yeah, didn't want to call my dad because I didn't want to worry him. And, yeah, I, I think in academia, because we are often high achievers and we do often have really high expectations of ourselves, quite often unrealistic expectations, I'd say, to, to place those expectations on ourselves in terms of our feelings and our emotions and our mental capacity can take us into some really dangerous territory, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important if that's ever an experience that you have to make that phone call. Yeah, and, and I say this as well because I, I, I've had similar experiences. I've, I've definitely had suicidal ideation and I actually had one point where it was almost like my body was in control like my mind was kind of really trying hard to control my body and make it do something that I didn't want it to do in terms of acting on self-harm and I didn't do it but I, I just remember being just so shocked that my brain could be that powerful and almost make me you know t- start to take steps to do something that that I knew I didn't actually want to do. Like, you know, I I always wanted to live as much as it was really, really challenging and sometimes it felt almost easier to die Mm. than to go through what I was going through, to have your brain be that powerful. So a friend of mine, she's a social worker and I mentioned this to her and and obviously she was very concerned and and she gave me all the all the numbers and made sure that I put them into my phone for if I was ever experiencing that and she strongly encouraged me to make those phone calls because you know people at those helplines are qualified to talk to you about these kind of things and yeah if there's anyone listening that's going through a, a really really tough time there are those helplines that are available for you. And, you know, we don't talk about suicide in our society as much as we possibly should. A lot of people that are qualified indicate that having that conversation is not going to put the idea in someone's head. People have those ideas. And I think it's more dangerous to avoid talking about it when it comes up than to actually put it out there in the open and be like, how how are you feeling you know, what is this making you want to, how is this making you want to behave? You know, should we maybe call someone to talk about this? And so I'm so, you know, I, I, Jess has told me this story before about the presentation and, and about going to her car. And at the time I had no idea. At the time I, I thought it was crazy that you were doing this presentation and I've told you that. Um, I just, I, I could, couldn't believe that you would, 
put yourself through that. But I, at the same time, can understand wanting to do that because, you know, yeah, as you said, you you wanted to be okay and you wanted to kind of move on if you could. But it's so devastating to me that you had to put on that mask or felt you had to put on that mask, felt you had to deal with all of that on your own and you were devastated in your car and having those thoughts and and no one knew so i'm i'm so happy you know that you have sought support and you know you've indicated that you've you're in a much better place now which is really great to hear so much better and <laughs> so much more gentle on myself which is yeah without you know like putting props to myself but like yeah in a much better place and really treating my mind much better than I was. I think you should prop yourself up. I think that's something to celebrate for sure. Yeah. So one final question for this part. You mentioned in your information prior to the the episode that you don't feel, as someone that's experienced anxiety disorder, depression, imposter syndrome, exacerbations of a lot of that within the academic environment you don't feel like academia is the best environment for someone like that and I wonder if you could talk me through why you feel that way because I think it's I think it's common I think it's a common feeling but I'd be really interested to hear sort of your your thoughts behind that so I think for myself having or living with a lot of anxiety I have a lot of anxiety over lots of different things and you know one of the it just one of them is about stability and career stability and um, perhaps this is not as much in in the scope of this podcast but just the career instability of academia gives me so much anxiety and I know for myself to be able to manage my anxiety I need to remove myself from that situation and so I've I've worked really hard in the last year to get myself a job that is going after my PhD that is going to be more stable you know an ongoing job where I don't have to worry about grants and living you know year to year or, or every two years having to reapply for my job and that's just my own personal experience because I want to try to remove as as little instability, uh, as much, sorry, instability as I can to lessen the effects of um, my anxiety. In terms of imposter syndrome, this has come up a lot in therapy and something that I learned in therapy when, uh, when I went to a, a particular really really good therapist actually who unfortunately has just had a baby so I haven't been able to see her anymore um how dare she have a child (laughs) but we we delved we spoke so much about about my this career and why I was feeling these feelings and why these feelings were such an issue for me and we backtracked and backtracked and and she she has the type of philosophy that most of the things that you believe you are as an adult has come from some type of childhood either trauma or interaction or experience 
And what we dug up was that, unfortunately for myself, because of particular childhood experiences, my core belief to my soul is that I'm unlovable, which is really, really sad to hear. And it was really sad to admit that. And I remember leaving that therapy session and walking to my car and being like, fuck, like, that's really bad. <laughs> like, to my core, I don't believe that I'm, I'm able to be loved. And for me, that's why the issues of or, or the feelings of imposter syndrome perhaps has perhaps has been exacerbated by the culture of academia because every day I'm surrounding myself with people who are the best of the best. And realistically, you have to be the best of, you know, some of the best of the best to get a PhD and and to be a medical research scientist. And I always feel like I'm not good enough and I always feel like I'm unlovable and, and that not just unlovable personally but unlovable with my work and I, I don't want to live the rest of my life like that and I've realised that for my own mental health and for my own sanity I, I don't want to be in this environment that is so competitive and so cutthroat because it's only going to make myself feel shit about myself and I don't want to live my life like that and you know for some people that competitiveness is what drives them and that's completely fine and completely normal but for myself and the experiences that I've gone through, I have really realised in the last few years that I can't do that to myself anymore. And I I don't want to work a career where no matter how much hard work you put in and the effort that you put in, sometimes the the effort isn't, it's not equivalent to to the output and that's just the nature of academia and, and of research and I know that that's just normal and you're always going to get exper experiments that don't work or research that doesn't work and you know you, ha you have to have a tough skin sometimes in research but yeah for myself like I know that I'm just perhaps just not cut out to be that type of person anymore um, and that's okay and I think it's been important for me to recognise that and to know that perhaps I need to be in a career that that output more matches the input. And I, yeah, and thanks for sharing. I, I, I think that's great to, you know, have developed that level of awareness for yourself and, and to make those personal decisions for yourself, you know, um, really valuing what you need at, at this particular point in your life. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for you for your, for your next step, moving into a new job uh, in policy. And Jess has recently started that job. If you'd like to get in contact with her, she's available through her science party business at My Mini Scientist on Instagram and Facebook, 
or also at Jessica Marshall on LinkedIn. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the end. Make sure to check out the next episode where Jess will talk us through some of the support resources she's discovered, including rapid eye movement therapy and some books by Osha Ginsberg and Sarah Wilson. Before you go, we have some support resources and information for how you can share your own story. If this episode brought anything up for you, there are mental health resources and emergency numbers available for various countries at www.checkpointorg.com forward slash global. For information found in this episode, refer to the episode description or visit the podcast section of our website, www.voicesofacademia.com. There, you can also access the full transcript of this episode, made available by our lovely Voices of Academia team member, Daniel Ranson. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Emily, with support from some very special people in my life. You can find me on Twitter at eking underscore sci for science, but I'm part of the larger Voices of Academia team. We have a website, a Twitter account, at Academic Voices, and also share stories in blog form, with the option of them being anonymous. If you like this podcast and want to hear more stories, please leave a review, subscribe, tell me what you think on Twitter, and tell your friends. The podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major listening platforms. You can also follow the Voices of Academia blog and receive notifications of new posts by email. Just head to our website, www.voicesofacademia.com, to sign up. If you have a mental health or wellness story to share, we absolutely want to hear from you. Whether you're a team leader, research assistant, postdoc, student, ex-academic, or any other type of researcher. Follow at Academic Voices on Twitter, visit the link in the episode description, or visit our website, www.voicesofacademia.com, for details on how to share your story. It's time someone gave you a voice.